You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. Hello, Pangea Cast listeners. This is Kurt Willems, the lead pastor at Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. If you are part of our church community and happen to miss this last Sunday, uh, hopefully this podcast will catch you up. And if you are outside of our community and this is one of the um, resources you utilize to grow in your connection to Jesus, awesome. Glad that this has been a great resource for you. Wanted to let you know that we had a bit of a technical difficulty this last week. And as a result, half of the talk really is, well, it didn't get recorded. Um, And so what I want to do is just give you a quick, maybe summary of what you missed. It's not going to be as detailed, unfortunately, but hopefully it will give you enough of an idea of where we were and how we kind of flowed to where we got so that you can basically have a good idea of what you miss on this recording. We really were looking at this idea of revelation and worship. And if this isn't your first talk in this series, or if this is rather your first talk in this series, you really should go back to uh, the first one because honestly, catching you up is going to be a much harder deal if you don't know where we've been. But what I want to say is in the first week, you might remember that we talked about John as a refugee who's now exiled to an island and somehow has this amazing encounter with God. And then we discussed um, basically the genre. What is revelation? And we talked about apocalyptic literature And I read a passage from the Apocrypha to sort of illustrate that about this eagle that the lion was going to utterly destroy. And um, hopefully those were just big picture sorts of ways of orienting us towards the book of Revelation. It's a book that's always talked about and often talked about wrongly. And so what this series has been trying to do is really orient us in a way that takes the genre seriously, takes the context of John seriously and these seven churches in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, very seriously. One of the things that um, you may remember from last week as well is that we talked about these three categories of what Revelation is trying to do, what it is essentially. So we talked about it being a book that is theopoetic, meaning that it's a book focused on expressive inner, uh, ex- expressive imagery about the worship of God. It's a book about worship. And we really leaned into that image a little bit. We talked about it being a book that is theopolitical, meaning it's uncivil in its posture towards the civil religion of empire and really confronts that. And then also that it's a book that has a pastoral or prophetic tone to it. In other words, it's a book inviting people into a way of life that is a witness. It has something to say about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so our lives should be marked by worship, incivility when it comes to 
the gods, the idols of empire, satanic things, you know, all of that stuff that gets lumped in that. And ultimately, a life of witness points to the beauty and uh, love of Jesus, the slaughtered lamb. And so that's where we've been today in this sermon. What you'll hear is reflections on revelation and worship. So taking one of those themes and really trying to unpack it. And we read this passage. It says in um, Revelation 1, 9 through 11, it says, I, John, your brother who shares with you in the hardship, kingdom, and endurance that we have in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and my witness about Jesus. I'll stop there. That's verse nine. So, so basically you have most of these themes already in there, right? He's proclaiming Jesus. He is um, witnessing to Jesus and that's because he's been uncivil. Yeah, he's he's been uncivil in his discourse because um, he's been talking about this other king, this other Lord. And so as he worships Jesus, proclaims Jesus, and does so in an uncivil way, well, his witness means he's exiled. He's put out into uh, the island of Patmos. So going back just to our overall themes, we can remember what Revelation is. Even from that one verse, it orients us. And then I'll read the rest of the passage and you'll get sort of the fuller picture. Um, but it, the last book of the Bible we've said is a revelation of Jesus to John for the church against the empire during the first century. Revelation reveals Jesus. It is written... Uh, through a guy named John and is revealed to John. It's for the church and specifically seven churches. It's against the empire, meaning the Roman manifestation of demonic evil in the world, right? A, a system that oppresses the poor, that marginalizes people, that contributed to the flattening of Jerusalem, which would have probably been John's hometown, if not homeland at least. And uh, this all happens during the first century. Everything we read should help orient us towards first century realities first before we try and make 21st century applications. And so that is what we're trying to do. And verse 9, I think, really nailed that, doesn't it already? I mean, he says it again, and I'll read the uh, rest of the passage through verse 11 here. He says, I, John, your brother, who shares with you in the hardship kingdom and endurance that we have in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and my witness about Jesus. I was in a spirit-inspired trance on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice that sounded like a trumpet. It said, write down on a scroll whatever you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So right there in that passage, we have the themes of what's going on that we've talked about, and we have what's going on with John. He was in a spirit-inspired trance, and what he's going to tell us in the book of Revelation is something 
that he is seeing in light of the context of these seven churches in Asia Minor. So what do we know about the context of these churches in Asia Minor? Well, we know a few things. That in Pergamum, it was the first city to adopt a specific cult to the royal family. Only a few years after Caesar Augustus won a civil war and became the first full-blown emperor, and that's in 29 BCE. And then Pergamum, Ephesus, and Smyrna, and Sardis each hosted an imperial temple, imperial altar, and had an imperial priest. Thyatira lacked a temple, but had an altar and a priest. Philadelphia boasted of everything but an additional altar. And Laodicea, although lacking a temple and priest, maintained an imperial altar as well. So um, when we talk about imperial and then tie like a spiritual word to it, like altar or priest or temple, what we're saying is uh, Augustus was cool with having himself be worshipped was cool with Julius Caesar being worshipped, was cool with Roma, the female embodiment of, of the empire being worshipped, and Pax. And so, so what you get by the time, you know, a little over 100 years after this, is a full-blown worship system, a social system devoted to the emperor. And it permeated all of life. It wasn't just you did your spiritual thing there and occasionally you did your... Um, you know, your your incense and did the thing at the altar, but really you weren't spiritual anywhere else. It was all of life was spirituality and all of it was informed by the local gods and the imperial gods. And you had to give your allegiance to the empire through these sorts of practices. And so by this time, we've got multiple, multiple gods being worshipped in the so-called imperial um, sort of pantheon, I guess. I don't know. We'll, we'll call it that. Uh, you've got Pax, who is the god of peace. And how did peace get accomplished? Well, through violence. Um, you had Nike, who, by the way, is more than a shoe company. But Nike is a word that means victory. And how did victory happen? Through conquest, right? So Pax and Nike are closely related. Nike is the one who celebrates the conquest and helps cultivate the conquest. And Pax is the um, kind of the vision of stability that comes through military strength and uh, violence and all the things. Then there's Roma, as I said, the female embodiment of the glorious empire and all of the emperors. And they're all worshipped and given homage. And, and this is the context that Revelation speaks to directly. And John has said, I'm not into this game. I'm opting out and I'm going to tell people that they need to opt out. And if they don't opt out, um, they're, they're buying a lie. They're buying something from that old dragon, that snake, that devil. Oh. You can imagine why you got sent to an island. I mean, I, I can. It makes perfect sense, actually. So here he is proclaiming another king, another lord. And it makes us really ask the question, like, whose vision of reality are we going to own? Are we going to own the empire's version of reality? Or are we going to own, well, the way of Jesus? And so Jesus does something for John by revealing 
a glimpse of a heavenly throne room and shows John this space where worship is happening, where the world's true Lord doesn't look like the lords and the gods of the empire, but looks like a slaughtered lamb. And so I'm going to read Revelation chapter 5. And I think after I get through Revelation chapter 5, I'll make one observation. And I think we'll be able to fade into the podcast at that point. And uh, I may, uh, I feel like the recording ends kind of in the middle of reading that passage. So I'll read it in its entirety. I'll quickly state the point I want to get to. And then I'll let the podcast take it from there. So it says this. Then I saw on a scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. It had writing on the front and the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. I saw a powerful angel who proclaimed in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or look inside it. So I began to weep and weep because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look inside it. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has emerged victorious so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. If I were to pause there, you're already hopefully thinking, if you've been tracking with this series and my comment earlier, of that eagle in 2nd Esdras, where the lion comes and says, I am going to rip you to shreds. You are going to be judged. And the way I'm going to do that is through ripping you apart with my might, because eagle, I am stronger than you. I think all of us who are followers of Jesus and believe the Bible would say, yeah, we believe that the lion of the tribe of Judah, this messianic embodiment of God, is stronger than any other force of good or evil in the world. But look at what happens. We get a lion, but then we get what scholars call a reversal image. And the reversal is pointing us to the point. So verse 6 says this, Then in the middle of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain. It had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into the whole earth. He came forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each held a harp and gold bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. They took up a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and by your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will rule on earth. Verse 11, then I looked And I heard the sound of many angels surrounding the throne, the living creatures and the elders. They numbered in the millions, thousands upon thousands. They said in a loud voice, Worthy is the slaughtered lamb to receive power, wealth, wisdom, and might, 
and honor, glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, I heard everything everywhere say, blessing, honor, glory, and power belong to the Lamb. Uh, belong to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and always. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That, my friends, is powerful imagery. We get the cosmic curtain pulled back and we see through metaphor, through image, but the reality that at the helm of the universe is God. And the way that God has chosen to relate to creation is through self-sacrificial love. Everyone expected a lion to defeat victory. Instead, victory defeated a lamb. Isn't this crazy? This is so crazy. It's Revelation 2 and 3 constantly brings up that victory or conquering happens, but it's a different kind of victory. And, and the word for victory as a goddess is very much the same word that is used casually as victory or victorious. And that is so interesting because it's as though the New Testament writer John is saying, you want to see victory? Look at the slaughtered lamb. Victory, the goddess, defeated a baby little lamb and thought it was a big deal. But that baby little lamb is like the lion of the tribe of Judah. Yeah. But that lion has chosen to be like a lamb because this is the way the world is going to know what it means to experience true love and hope. Okay, my friends, we're going to transition into the bit of sermon that we were able to capture. Some might be a little bit overlapping, but hopefully me sort of walking you through my notes helps you have the back end or the front end so that the back end makes some sense. Worship, right? Nike, victory. And you may have caught in the, the passage there um, that victorious language. Throughout the book of Revelation, anytime victorious, victory is used, it is the same, same word that would be used for the Roman goddess victory. What is victory's role? When people are conquered, she parades it in front of them. She reminds the Romans how great Rome is, and she reminds the marginalized and the abused, the beat up, the down and out, that they've got no shot unless they assimilate, unless they join. And here we have in the message of Jesus in Revelation, we have this ferocious lion. And all of us, our instincts, right, are this ferocious, powerful God should step into evil situations and tear it to smithereens. Then we wouldn't have to deal with evil. We wouldn't have to deal with it. And yet, this is the same God that says, no, no, no. Actually, let me show you what it looks like to conquer. I'm going to allow this so-called victory to tear me up, to execute me, to defeat me. 
air quotes, defeat, yeah, resurrection, right? This impulse is counterintuitive to all of us. We naturally do not want to be people who suffer well. A couple of caveats. Number one, there are some people who are forced to suffer unjustly, um, who have no choice but to suffer. We call that out as, no, that's not good, right? Uh, we, we, we have no tolerance for people who are forced into suffering and to call that good. That is not good. Can God use bad things and make good? Sometimes. But that is, in and of itself is not good. What we're talking about is the empowered God of the universe choosing suffering to show love. Do you see the difference? This God chose it. So, so, so we've got to be very careful, especially if we're part of dominant culture, right? That we don't somehow just say, hey, um, when people are suffering for Jesus, it's good. We don't know how to, when have you suffered for Jesus? You know? You know what I mean? Like, I don't even know when I've suffered for Jesus, really, you know? And so I want to just name that as honestly as I can. And yet at the same time say, there is something counterintuitive about following Jesus, and it involves a different kind of victory. It involves a different kind of posture in the world. I mean, let's look at our coins again. Look at this. Next one. Right up. There it is. Yep. Yep. See that little wingling lady? Yeah, on the right? Yeah. That's her proclaiming, we're victorious. We've got this done. We took care of it. And yet we know that Rome does fall eventually. The powerful fall. Right? Because when everyone expected a lion, I mean, the Jewish people, the followers of God, they wanted that lion. And the reason many of them wouldn't follow Jesus was because he wasn't the lion they wanted. He was slain, executed, little baby lamb. But here's the deal. The New Testament, and this passage in particular, reminds us that worship belongs to a slaughtered little lamb. And the word there in Greek is very clear. It is like this little, tiny, helpless, baby sort of lamb that got executed. In other words, like when Paul, you remember this part of the New Testament in Philippians 2? Paul's like, um, he's like, you know, Jesus emptied himself. Do you know what I'm talking about? This like sort of like Jesus comes to to be part of humanity and like just gives up all of his rights. The way Revelation says that is he became this little helpless lamb, chose to be this helpless lamb when he could have been this powerful lion because both are true of him. But this is how he chose to lean into reality. There's a great quote by a scholar named Justo Gonzalez and he um, he says this about it. He says, power has been gained by means of self-surrender and even death. This victory, in contrasting to the victories of armies and of lions, is a victory of love, of giving, of self, of suffering. Undoubtedly, this image is presented to Christians in the suffering churches of Asia, so they may know that quite possibly through those very sufferings that seem to be a sign of defeat, that they are achieving the greatest victories 
Like the lamb, Christians must conquer by means of love and giving of self. Do you ever find yourself in a space in your life where you just want to fix things? You know what I'm saying? Like, do you ever have those days where you're like, if I can just kind of control this thing over here, I feel safer? If I can kind of manipulate this little part of my life, I'm going to have security finally. I'm going to have what I need. But ever so subtly, maybe you found yourself in a position where it's like, I've got to kind of move it a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like kind of coerce it just a little, just so it feels like I'm safe. Yeah, I do that all the time. I um, have this gift, I'm told, that I can get things done when I talk about stuff to people. Let me tell you about that. So if I go into a store and I need the best possible situation, discount, whatever, half the time I can sweet talk my way into what I want. Just going to be honest about that, right? Uh, if, I were, if I was ever in trouble in school, I could just sweet talk myself into, I'm actually a really nice kid though, right? right? Like if I ever had any issue, I can just kind of like, let me, let me just show you what kind of a nice person I am. And it was my my niceness that actually was coercive, yeah? Like, we don't even often notice the ways in which we're acting like the lion because we can put a shroud of, this is good for everybody. It's good that we leveled the temple. They were, they were a bunch of rebels, and now we can rebuild that city, and it's going to be part of the glorious empire of Rome. We do all this kind of backpedaling and self-talk, and we figure out that, hey, if we can just fix this thing or manipulate that thing or come to grips with, like, I'm really smooth here, and I'm just going to make sure it smoothly leans my direction, we convince ourselves that coercion is just, I've got a gift. Oh, man. I, I just wonder if even in those little tiny moments, whatever they may be, and I just gave you my silly example, right? That if, if we were to give ourselves to the posture of Jesus, what that would look like. Maybe coercion and control are the very things that we give our allegiance to by default. And Jesus is like, but, but you could have so much more. You could have so much more because I, I just, giving our allegiance over to anything other than the lamb risk justifying the cycles of victory. And I, again, air quotes there on purpose. Why do you think Christians start trumpeting the, the sounds of war when there's conflict in the world? Why do, why do you think some Christians perpetuate culture wars that are completely unnecessary? Not because they're bad people. It's because their imaginations, maybe in one area of their life, again, this siloed existence, have been convinced that victory has to come. Sort of giving our allegiance over here. We wouldn't use that word. We won't call it that. And every little tiny compromise 
We're slowly helping the cycle of violence, whether physical or rhetorical or emotional, to just kind of continue going and going. And we don't even know we're contributing to it. Because here's, here's my biggest point today. If I had any point I wanted to bring up today, empire isn't just something that tries to run the world and coerces us. Empire is a reality that resides within us anytime we open ourselves up to the cycle. All of us have to come to grips with the fact that there is um, Jesus hopefully residing in our lives, but that presence of Jesus is in tension with all of the stuff that we we still have to work out. Shared with you many times for me, some of that came through therapy. Some of that's come through having a spiritual director in my life. Some of that's come through community that I, I recognize in my own life that there are things that look a lot more like empire and a lot less like the love of a slaughtered lamb. And it, it takes years, I'm convinced, to see those cycles broken in our own lives. But here's the most beautiful thing about Revelation. It doesn't just name the problem. It points us towards solutions. It doesn't just name, hey, world messy. There's a dragon. There's a sea. There's beasts. There's all this chaos. There's all these weird Roman gods. Yeah, that's all problem. But it also says there's victory for you. It's victory for Jesus. But it's this counterintuitive kind of victory that says, I no longer have to be committed to coercing the world into my safe image. And the only way that I think we can come to grips with those parts of ourselves is to recognize what Revelation is trying to do. It's pulling back the curtain on the cosmos to show us who sits on the throne of the universe. And here's what's beautiful. For the people in first century Asia Minor, they looked at this passage and they remembered, wait a second, Domitian isn't on the throne of the universe. Rome is not on the throne of the universe. And by the way, none of us are on that throne, thank God. Jesus is. The way Jesus rules isn't through coercion. It isn't through manipulation. It's through self-giving love. It's through demonstrating against the powers of evil, against the demonic forces that want to coerce the world, that love conquers all coercion, that love conquers all violence, that love conquers all fear, even if it means being slaughtered, even if it means And so as I think about this passage, maybe you remember in, in um, this section of Revelation, there's 24 elders. Do you remember any of you have this in your heads? There's a section in Revelation, so like four and five kind of go together. Today we read five, and if you were to pair it with four, there's this whole thing where the... Um, there's these elders, and then the angels come, and all this stuff, and the climatic point in part of this passage is they all kind of lay their crowns. They say, yes, we have value. We matter. We're wearing these crowns, man. I mean, that's a big deal. 
And they just bow down to Jesus and they just take them off. I think this passage invites us to lay down our crowns, our impulses for coercive victories at the feet of Jesus. Uh, I don't know what this means to you. This is certainly more abstract of a concept. But what I do know is this, that if, if, if we can get to a place in our lives where we're willing to be honest about what's going on internally, honest about what's going on with the people around us, there is no telling the kinds of subversive victories that you can have in your life, that you can have in this community, that you can have for the people who are marginalized like John was marginalized. But if you want it to look like Jesus, it always looks like love. Not soft love that doesn't tell the truth, but a love that tells the truth in such a way that it either captures the imagination of people or gets you thrown on an island. That is love. It breaks the cycle every time. We don't have to be conformed to any cycle. Jesus wants to make you free. Jesus wants to make you whole. Jesus invites you into a life of freedom so that you with others can proclaim how good that freedom is.